On March 12, 2008, the New York Times reported that a team of computer security researchers from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and the universities of Washington and Massachusetts were able to gain wireless access and reprogram a combination heart defibrillator and pacemaker, gaining ultimate control of that device. Since that day nine years ago, the healthcare sector has become a much more prominent target for cybersecurity attacks. Since that day nine years ago, millions of pacemakers have been implanted worldwide. And since that day nine years ago, the mobile medical device market has continued to enjoy robust predictions of an $8 billion market value by 2019. So as we begin Cybersecurity Awareness Month, what should healthcare organizations do to protect patients and their connected medical devices from being compromised? In this episode of Code Red, we discuss the impact that Connected Health will have on medical device security with HIMSS Privacy and Security Committee member Kathy Petrozino, Principal, Cybersecurity Partnerships and Information Privacy at MITRE Corporation. All that and more coming up. Intrusion Detected Code Red. I'm here with Kathy Petrozino, Principal, Cybersecurity Partnerships and Information Privacy at the MITRE Corporation. Kathy also sits on the HIMSS Privacy and Security Committee, and we thank you, Kathy, for uh, that, and welcome. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, cybersecurity, big topic. All of a sudden, it's in the news, especially in healthcare. What What do you think is the greatest threat right now to the healthcare sector uh, regarding cyber? I, I think the biggest threat is that the threat has changed quite a bit over the past five years or so, and some of the healthcare leaders have been slow to understand the changing threat and the full implication it has to the organization. And that is the biggest threat to healthcare is the lack of awareness at the leadership level. Uh, nowadays, we have adversaries that are bona fide criminals, or worse, they could be nation state actors or, or even terrorist groups. And this is their profession. Their profession, they make a living out of breaking into healthcare organizations, financial organizations, etc., and stealing information. And like criminals, they are very good at breaking in, even through traditional defenses. They're very hard to detect when they have broken in. They may hang out for a while. Uh, often the consequences are fairly insignificant for them, even if they are caught, uh, because they sit in a country far, far away that U.S. doesn't really have good ability to, to bring them to justice. And these adversaries can be very disruptive in both overt and covert ways. Uh, they steal protected health information or intellectual property. Uh, they may conduct distributed denial of service attacks or they may conduct a ransomware attack, which has been in the news this past year for, for healthcare organizations over and over again. And yet we find that, you know, 80% of the most recent HIMSS survey showed that 80% of respondents had significant security incidents. And cynics would say that the other 20% 
are just unaware of the fact that they have had a significant security incident. And a recent Poneman benchmark has shown that some healthcare organizations are actually decreasing their security budgets, 10%, and 50% are just keeping them the same. So they don't seem to understand what the threat is about, the compliance implications of the threat, the financial impact, but beyond that, the potential impact to patient safety is huge in terms of corrupted electronic health records or medical devices that have been hacked. And so these threats are actually very concerning to the mission of the organization, and, and the healthcare leadership has been slow to recognize that. Well, so that well, is my biggest worry. Well, let me, let, let's go back to that, that issue of leadership. And, and is that happening at the C level? Is that at the board level? Where is the disconnect in, in your um, observation? Yes and yes. That, that both the C level and the board level have been slow to recognize the full implication of what's going on today when it comes to cyber attacks and adversaries and what they're trying to do. And it's very frightening when you when you really start digging in and understanding some of the goals of some of these organizations. It is very frightening. Well, you also mentioned medical devices. Um, what's the best approach for providers when thinking about medical devices in this environment? So I think, in my opinion, there is no one approach when it comes to mitigating risk uh, with medical devices or just about any real risk problem there is. What's best for an organization can depend on many factors. So it can depend on some cyber-related factors, but it can also depend on patient health, patient safety, cost operations, things like that. So uh, over the past couple years, I've been working on a project for my company, and we have spoken with a large number of medical device stakeholders uh, with respect to cyber, and uh, we've talked to a lot of providers as part of this project. And I'm happy to share with you some of the solutions that we heard um, when we were working on this project from the providers. So step one was that um, it, it's very important to understand the vulnerability. So when we talk about a medical device vulnerability, what is it that we're talking about? Uh, some providers have a testing capability. So uh, some providers are large enough and resource enough that they're able to test these devices before they go online, understand what the vulnerabilities are, and are able to take um, or implement countermeasures. Uh, some speak with the manufacturer to try and understand what's going on in terms of vulnerabilities with a device. And some do both. Some uh, engage with the manufacturer, do some of their own testing, and the end result is they understand what is, what is or are the problems associated with a particular device, and then they more fully understand what type of compensating controls are at their um, disposal in terms of trying to manage that vulnerability. In terms of risk mitigation, when we spoke with providers, we found a wide range of approaches in terms of mitigating risk. 
at one extreme, we saw one provider who basically decided to get rid of devices that they felt the, the risk associated with them, the vulnerabilities associated with them, were just too large and unmanageable. And instead, they purchased other manufactured devices. That's one extreme. That means you have some resources because that's not a cheap solution. Right. Um, more commonly, what we saw is that uh, a lot of providers took an architecture approach. So they used, um, they set up separate networks where they would put risky devices on their own virtual network and separate it from the rest of the hospital or provider's network. So that the, for example, the electronic health record system would not be at risk because of the device. So the device was very isolated and could not damage uh, the, the rest of the operations of the of the provider. And that is one solution. And in some cases, what we heard were providers setting up hundreds and even thousands of virtual networks in order to protect. The, you know, the overall operations of, of the organization. Depending on some of the problems, what uh, certain providers did, you know, some problems were associated with physical access to the, to the device. So they would make the device behind a locked door. In other cases, problems were associated with the wireless aspect of a device, and they would just disable the wireless and make sure that it was a wired connection. So we also that saw that type of solution. We saw in, in many cases that the, the provider would work with the manufacturer to come up with a solution that mitigated risk, but at the same time took care of the patient and making sure that um, the, the, the patient's health and safety were paramount. Uh, finally, I would also add that there are a number of commercial products out there that protect networks from medical devices that have um, unaddressed vulnerabilities. So that is another option. And, and finally, there's always the option to accept the risk as is, but um, you really need to understand what is the potential that could happen with that device and balance it against, you know, is there a significant patient health or safety issue? That really is paramount. So, you know, there are different approaches. It really depends on the organization, the resources at their disposal. But what I'd like to emphasize is that more communication between and among providers and device manufacturers is really what's necessary so that at the end of the day, the patient's health and safety is the number one issue that is considered when addressing devices with, with vulnerabilities. Well, well, let's learn a little bit more about you. Um, what, what, what's your story about how you first got connected with the cybersecurity sector? So um, my, my connection initially started many years ago. Uh, I came out of school as a software engineer, which was pretty rare at that time. I won't, <laughs> I don't want to date myself, but it was a while ago. And um, software engineers, in fact, you know, at that time, they didn't really have a computer science major. So I majored in applied math, came out of school as a software engineer. I uh, 
ended up working on a project for the government that was classified and security was a major, you know, cyber security was a major part of the project. And I really enjoyed um, the whole analysis angle of security. Uh, it, it was very fascinating to me, uh, the balancing, what could go wrong, how could things fail and lead to security problems, how did you try and fix them. I, I really enjoyed it. And so that is how I started. My, my, and that was about probably about 20-plus years ago. Uh, my second awakening uh, was privacy. I was hired as a security resource at an insurance company. And right along the time that I was there, Gramley, Tbilisi, and HIPAA, you know, became part of the regulation uh, uh, foundation for this organization. And they needed somebody to actually take care of it. And uh, I, they looked at me. I was very interested in learning more about privacy. So I became part of the Tiger team to address the IT issues associated with HIPAA, with Family Flyley, and I enjoyed that even more. I became very passionate about privacy, uh, and, and it stuck. So those, you know, those were my two big awakenings. Um, Well, in your time doing this, um, how has your, what have you observed uh, regarding the environment for women in this industry, and how has it changed since you first started? <laughs> I, I've observed a lot as a woman. Uh, when I first started, um, just to give you an uh, understanding of what it was like, when I was in school, I took some engineering courses because I really wanted to understand the hardware sitting underneath the software. And I was one of two women in a class of 50. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was, that, those were the numbers in those days. Uh, the amount, uh, the number of women studying engineering was very small. When I became, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, became involved with security, uh, I led a team of all men to develop a secure implementation of firmware, that is classified software and hardware. So I was in charge of all men, and it actually worked fine. I mean, the men the men respected me, and, and that's what you need. Um, when I came to MITRE, it was a, a bit of an anomaly. Uh, MITRE was a very, and is, a very family-friendly uh, company. And so I was interviewed by a woman. I was hired by a woman. Uh, I currently uh, work. The big leader of my division is a woman. So at MITRE, we actually have a fair amount of women supporting cyber. It's really not that unusual. And in fact, um, we hosted a meeting of a number of um, healthcare organizations, both the public and private sector. And, and we were asked, how, how did you do it? How do you get so many women in cyber? And it, it just it just happened uh, because of the, the company's policy. So it was family-friendly, which in many ways means it's women-friendly. Um, and we are still looking for more men and women in cyber, as just about everyone is nowadays. Cyber is a very hot area for work. Um, 
along the way, I mean, yes, there are always stereotypes. Uh, it can be tricky. Many years ago, I supported projects that were uh, for the military. And many years ago, they still, when there was a female in the room, it was a little bit awkward. And often, I was the only woman in the room. So it made it a bit difficult. But you just have to, what I found is I had to know my stuff. And I had to be able to contribute to the conversation so that there was no doubt that I belonged there. This was, you know, that, that, that I, in fact, I was leading the leader. You have to belong. You have to know you belong. You have to be prepared and know your stuff. And then you speak up and speak often. And that, to me, is is how you know women really just need to, from the beginning, establish their place. Well, who was your first mentor, and what was the best piece of advice you got? So what I would say is that my, my first mentor, um, I've had many mentors, first of all, over the years, but... One of my best mentoring advice was actually an article I was listening to on the radio. And there was a woman there who said, um, especially for women, she was saying, what women need to do better is network better. Because back in those days, um, women tended to just work very hard. They would sit at their desk and eat, you know, eat their lunch and work late. But what they weren't doing is they weren't networking, and that was actually key. That, you know, if you have a choice of working during lunch versus going out during lunch and meeting some people and, you know, both within the, the organization and external to the organization, go out and meet people because that's how, that's how you grow. That's how you get promoted. That's how other job opportunities emerge. And so that was actually one of the best pieces of advice I, I heard. Uh, I do have another mentoring story. A couple years ago, I was, I was in a bit of a funk when it came to work. I wasn't quite happy where I was. And I went to a colleague of mine at, mine at MITRE, and I asked her to coach me. She had studied coaching, um, the whole you know philosophy behind that. And I asked her if she could coach me and help me figure out how to get uh, in a happier, better position at work. It took about probably about six months altogether, but it made a huge difference, huge, huge difference. And um, I'm still very grateful for her. Uh, and, and the last thing I will say about mentoring uh, is that what I have learned over the years is that sometimes there are you have secret mentors, almost like a secret Santa. You have people who are going to bat for you, people who are actually, you know, once you impress them, they are the ones who are advocating for you in the conversations, maybe among leadership, among other projects, among other divisions. And over the years, um, I've paid more attention when it's come to, to my knowledge that so-and-so has been actually advocating for me and in a way mentoring for me even though I didn't ask for it. And I acknowledge to them that I realize they've been helping me out. I really appreciate it. And then I often ask if they have any other advice to me um, because they've already been looking out for me. So do they have further advice about how 
I could, um, you know, advance my career, you know, change my behavior, anything. I'm, I'm always up for constructive feedback. Uh, I welcome it. And um, so I think with secret mentors, be aware of them because they're, they're wonderful to have. They clearly have your back already. And, um, and they can really help you. You know, they've been paying attention and they can help you. And do you play that role? Yes. Very much so. Um, I really enjoy being a mentor. I've been asked to be a mentor. I've been asked to help uh, other employees in a number of ways, from helping them to feel more secure at work, to helping them find better work, to helping them, you know, get better footing. Uh, I, I really enjoy playing that role. I know others enjoy it. Uh, it's. I feel it's a, a big honor to be asked to mentor somebody. Uh, I tell my kids, you know, when they're at work, if they're enjoying the job, want to stay there, find a mentor. Find somebody who can help you understand things about the company that aren't written, that are that you need to learn by being there, and that they have years, you know, the mentor has years of experience beyond you to help you. So I, I do that. I, I really enjoy it. And I'm doing it now, and uh, you know, I like to pay it forward. I think it's, I think it's worthwhile. And most most leaders I know really like doing that because they love helping people, and they love helping, especially young people. You know, there's something about helping them, uh, you know, get get a leg up on what they're doing and be able to contribute more and and, and feel more a part of the company. And helping, as you said, pay it forward to the next generation. Well, we have about a minute left, and this is a question we ask pretty much everyone that we talk to. What is your favorite technological invention, and what do you think its impact has been on our culture? Oh, my. <laughs> so, I, you know, I remember before we had the World Wide Web, and I have to say... With Mosaic, years ago, Mosaic was the first um, browser to come out to support, you know, hypertext linking and all that. And I remember that, I think, I remember at one point having that aha moment of this is going to change the world. So I was kind of at it at the very beginning for MITRE, as a matter of fact, and that was many, many years ago, uh, my first time at MITRE. And I had a aha moment. I said, this is going to change everything. And uh, sure enough, it has. Uh, so I have to say it's, it, it's been a game changer. I think everyone at this point would acknowledge that. So it's nothing profound, but um, I happened to be there when it was starting, and I thought, I thought it would change everything, and I didn't fully appreciate how much it would change everything. Well, uh, Kathy Petrovizino, thank you so much for joining us. Kathy is Principal, Cybersecurity Partnerships and Information Privacy at the MITRE Corporation. And Kathy also sits on the HIMSS Privacy and Security Committee. Kathy, thanks once again for joining us today and sharing your insights. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, Rod. The HIMSS Privacy and Security Forum is the nation's leading event dedicated exclusively to healthcare privacy and security. These premier two-day conferences are held throughout the country and bring together hundreds of senior executives for thought leadership focused on solving some of the industry's toughest challenges. 
The HIMSS Privacy and Security Forum is designed to meet the needs of CIOs, CISOs, and other senior health IT leaders. And the information shared at the forum is practical, solutions-based, and actionable. It's designed to help with planning, coordination, and oversight. Each event offers the opportunity to learn of industry developments, network with peers, and discuss key topical issues. Some of the topics covered include cloud security, cybersecurity, HIPAA, identity and access management, incident response, medical device security, vendor management, and much more. The next HIMSS Privacy and Security Forum is scheduled for December 5th through the 7th at the Western Boston Waterfront in Boston, Massachusetts. And you can find more information about this upcoming HIMSS Privacy and Security Forum on the landing page for this episode of Code Red. I am Ram Ramadas, Vice President of Privacy, Information Security, and Electronic Health Record Compliance Oversight at Catholic Health Initiative. And I'm also a member of HIMSS Privacy and Security Committee. You are listening to Code Red. So what is your organization's medical device security policy? Do you even have one? We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or a voice memo from your smartphone telling us how your organization deals with medical device security. Let us know what other topics you think we should cover on the show. Send your voice memos or emails and topic suggestions to codered at hymns.org. We'd like to thank our guest, HIMSS Privacy and Security Committee member Kathy Petrozino, for sharing her expertise on this important subject. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Code Red. Code Red is a production of HIMSS North America and is co-produced by Adam Bazer. Rhonda Frazier is our story editor and guest relations manager. Special thanks to Lee Kim for her insights and cybersecurity expertise. I'm Rod Pihowski, and we'll see you at the battle stations for the next Code Red. Intrusion detected. Code Red.